today's Bible reading. First Bible reading is from 1 Corinthians 8, 1 to 13. Now about food sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone thinks he knows anything, does not yet know it, it is as he knew, ought, it, ought to know. But, but if anyone loves God, he is known by him. About eating food sacrificed to idols, then we know that an idol is nothing in the world, and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or, or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father. All things are from him, and we exist for him. And there is one Lord, Jesus Christ. All things are through him, and we exist through him. However, not everyone has this knowledge. Some have, some have been so used to, used to idolatry up until now that when they eat food sacrificed to an idol, their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not bring us close to God. We are not worse off if we don't eat, and we are not better if we do eat. But, we, but be careful that this right of yours in no way becomes a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you, the one who has knowledge, dining in an idol's temple, won't his weak conscience be encouraged to eat food off to idols? So the weak person, the brother, of, brother or sister for whom, for whom Christ died, is ruined by your knowledge. Now, when you sin like this against brothers and sisters and, and wound their weak conscience, you are sinning against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother or sister to fall, I will never again eat meat so that I won't cause my brother or sister to fall. Second reading is from Mark 1, 21 to 28. They went into Capernaum and right away he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and began to teach. They were astonished at his teaching because he was teaching them as one who had authority and not like the scribes. Just then a man with an unclean spirit was in their synagogue. He cried out, What do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit threw him into convulsions, shouted with a loud voice and came out of him. They were all amazed and so they began to, eat, to ask each other, what is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. At once the news about him spread throughout the entire vicinity of Galilee. And I have pleasure in saying that this is the word of God. Thank you, Brad. Do you want your glasses? Okay. You know, uh, during my uh, formative years as a young Christian, an alt-pop singer-songwriter by the name of Steve Taylor, he released a song on his album with a very confronting title. The title is, It's Harder to Believe Than Not To. And honestly, he was not kidding. I have discovered this to be true in my pastoral experience, but honestly, in my own personal experience. It is sometimes harder to believe than not to. 
Because being a friend of Jesus involves not just recognizing the truth of God's existence and the truth of his commands, but continuing to live as if they are true in every situation and challenge we face. As we uh, prepare to restart our regular ministry programs and our occasional events for this year, it is important we are sure that we understand how our individual discipleship interacts with our community of faith. In other words, God's story makes sense of our story, and it happens in community. Therefore, placing our faith in requires a commitment to building each other up to maturity. The fact is, not placing our faith in Jesus, living a Christian lifestyle, nor building each other up to maturity unless we actually believe God's commands are true. This simple fact that I want us now to consider seriously. Now last week I presented to you definition of discipleship. And that is that the friends of Jesus place our faith in Him, live a Christian lifestyle, and build up to maturity. Now expanding on the first phase or segment of this definition, which describes the act of placing one's faith in Jesus, I've chosen you to use the language of story. You may have noticed that last week. But then you may have wondered why. Well, I want to explain it to you fully now. Why I choose to use the language of I use the language of stories because stories are naturally helpful to the human condition. Stories are naturally helpful to the human condition. Journalist and storytelling expert Christopher Booker wrote about the ubiquity of stories in our daily experience by explaining that we spend a phenomenal amount of our lives following stories telling them, listening to them, reading them, watching them being acted out on the television screen or in films or on a stage, they are far and away one of the most important features of our everyday existence. These structured sequences of imagery are in fact the most natural way we know to describe almost anything which happens in our lives. Think about it. Think of the last time you try to make or to share a piece of information. How often did you share that recommendation or that insight in the form of a story? Think about how you enjoy stories more than the dry and direct transmission of information, no matter how useful that information is. And I'm trying to avoid a dry and direct transmission right now. Well, in this scene, Undeniable Laws of Communication, John Maxwell explained what storytelling does. Stories animate our reasoning process. Stories create emotional responses. Stories are pictures of who we aspire to be. Stories give us permission to act. Stories connect. Stories stick. Stories captivate us. They are us. And indeed, Dr. Zeus's stories were so formative for so many of us, weren't they? Stories are us. 
They move us in so many different, unique, and creative ways. In fact, this week, my son described to our family a recent trend in social media post describing dad lore. In May last year, Tumblr user Propalitet made a post that read, fathers casually dropping the craziest lore of their lives in the middle of a conversation, which was followed by Tumblr user Revolutionary T writing, my brother and I trying to piece together our dad's life based on random info he casually brings up once and then never mentions again. The post gathered 180,000 responses in a year. Now, my favorite story from the original thread, which you cannot read here because it's too small, it goes like this. It was shared by user Legend of the Hidden BBC. She wrote, My grandmother was harassing me about the dangers of online dating. And my grandpa was like, Oh, for crying out loud, leave her alone. My parents met online. She'll be fine. Apparently, my great-grandparents were both telegraph operators who would chat over the line in between messages and fell in love. And my great-grandma moved halfway across the country to marry a dude she met over the telegraph. No one alive in the family had ever heard this story until like 70-plus years later when I happened to start seeing a dude from OkCupid which is an online dating service. A great story. Her great-grandparents met over the line. Now, it's my guess the impulse of fathers to drop these stories into random conversations is to communicate how the current situation they are in reflects something of who he is as a person now or the person he used to be but has now grown out of. Even more interesting, according to my son, is that young men are now identifying their own crazy behavior as building up their dad lore. Like one user who chose images from the series Invincible to depict how he planned to share his dad lore with his son. He's planning, I'm going to pose like this, superhero, when I share my stories with my son. And he's got them all mapped out and he's practicing already even now. Friends, our Creator, in His goodness and His generosity, designed us to respond to and interact with each other best through stories, making stories naturally helpful to the human condition. In fact, the Bible itself contains uh, roughly 40 for 50 to 45% of biblical story material. This includes stories of creation, historical accounts, parables, and biographical narratives of various individuals. The stories in the Bible serve different purposes, such as conveying moral lessons, recording historical events, and illustrating spiritual truths. Stories are naturally helpful to the human condition, which makes our life so much more interesting when we live them together. Can't tell a story to yourself, can you? You need others. Now, from our own personal experience, we know some stories are better than others. They are more interesting, and they explain more. And of all the stories that have ever been told or will be told, it is God's story alone that provides an overarching story that serves as a solid foundation for our life together. 
While it has always been the case, especially in our postmodern world, many argue we do not need a grand overarching story called a meta-narrative. We don't need that overarching story to make sense of our story, they argue. See, meta-narratives presume to provide a framework for understanding and interpreting the world. Religious texts, philosophical theories, and cultural ideologies aim to explain the meaning and purpose of life, as well as the major events and themes that shape human existence. But in our postmodern world, the individual can do that for themselves, thank you very much. Can we? Really? Josh McDowell, author of the now classic apologetic book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, used a very simple technique for demonstrating just how much we need God's story to make sense of ours. McDowell would start by asking someone, are you a good person? To which they would normally answer, yes, of course I am. He would then ask, how do you know you are a good person? They might respond, I do good things, or I have good values. McDowell would then ask, how do you know those things or values are good? If you decide for yourself what is good, then you can call anything good, can't you? And that wouldn't make it so. Person then might retort, society tells me what is good. To which McDowell might then ask, but if you, an individual, are incapable of determining what really qualifies as good, how can a dictatorship, with one person making the decisions, or even a democracy with a collective of individuals making the decisions, how can they be any better at determining what is good than you are? The person might then declare in exasperation, I just know in my heart what is good. McDowell would then bring his point home by stating, but that sense of knowing what is good must be based on something other than yourself or society. Where then does it come from? To which the only satisfactory answer is, the God who made the world and everything in it, he is Lord of heaven and earth. In him we live and move and have our being. See, that is a great place for an amen, friends. I mean, I'm not making this up. See, if we were to be honest with ourselves, we know deep within that we do not naturally know what is right or wrong what is good or bad, what we should or should not do. Even so, we all have a sense that there is a standard for right or wrong, good or bad, and that standard comes from beyond us. We stretch and we strain to understand and follow that standard, or we try ever so desperately to find our own way in the world. And in that search, the dry and direct transmission of wisdom and guidance does not capture our imagination, but stories do move us. The stories contained in the Bible reveal God's story as a grand overarching story that can help individuals and societies make sense of their experiences and guide their actions and beliefs. It alone provides a solid foundation for our life together. And when we discover and accept that truth, we just know how right that truth is. But we've been told all truth is relative. Our family, our friends, and our neighbors will decry. 
Well, how is that working out for you? We really need to ask more often. See, our postmodern world wants all truth to be relative to each individual, which is simply untenable. That way of viewing the world is not able to be maintained or defended against attack or objection. A simple illustration designed by Brett Kunkel of the apologetics organization Stand to Reason will make this clear. So, on the count of three, I want you to shout out your favorite flavor of ice cream. You ready? One, two, three. Clearly, there's a wide variety of favorite ice creams out there. Well, Brett writes, when it comes to choosing a flavor of ice cream, you choose what you like or what is true of your preferences. There is no right flavor you must choose, and no one is going to take issue, except for Len, if you like chocolate more than vanilla. Although statistically, vanilla is the most popular flavor across the world. However, when it comes to choosing medicine, you do not choose what you like or what is true for you. Rather, you choose the right kind of medicine, medicine that will actually and is proven to heal you, medicine that is true, period. So, on the count of three, I want you to shout out what is the correct medicine one should take if he or she is a diabetic. Ready? One, two, three. To say a truth is objective does not mean that everyone agrees or that you know it for certain. It only means that it is capable of being true or false. If you're working on a complex mathematics problem, you may not be certain you have the right answer, but you are certain there is a right answer, not merely your personal preference. That is an objective truth. Your preference or opinions are what we call subjective. Your favorite flavor of ice cream is your choice. You can prefer chocolate, or you can prefer vanilla, or if you're a true blue fair dinkum Aussie, then you will prefer fairy bread ice cream from Gelato Messina, which includes buttery toast-flavored gelato with hundreds and thousands sprinkled throughout, and it's delicious. But let's put this distinction between objective and subjective truth to the test, okay? So I'm going to ask you all a couple of questions, and I want you to shout out insulin if you think my statement is objective, being true or false, right or wrong. Or shout out ice cream if you think my, sub my statement is subjective, being a personal preference. Got it? Insulin, it's, if it's an objective truth. Ice cream, if it's a sub subjective truth. You ready? That girl's shirt is pink. Yes, of course. It is clearly pink. So is his. So is... Well, that's a bit more peachy back there, isn't it? All right, here's another one. Movie world is better than sea world. Pretty obvious. Two plus two equals four. Excellent. Coffee is better than tea. You better answer correctly. That's right. Good on you. All right, let's get a little bit harder now. These have been too easy. Speeding is wrong. And all the bikers said ice cream, yes. Some of us would like to think ice cream. 
However, the answer is insulin because it is the law of the land. However, this is what makes it interesting. Because even though it is the law of the land, it's individuals who have made that law. So that kind of makes it subjective, doesn't it? So how about this? Anyway, just food for thought. Let's get a bit tougher. Sex outside of marriage is wrong. See, despite our often overwhelming temptations, the biblical instructions are quite clear. Final one. God exists. Indeed, it's insulin, objective, if Jesus is who he said he is and what is written about him is true. Sadly, far too many people, yes, even among your family, friends, and neighbors, cannot distinguish between right and wrong, what is true and what is false. They want to believe all truth is relative, but this way of viewing the world fails the pub tests. Yet so many people fall for it. Let's be honest, you need to take a hard look at yourself and ask whether you know the difference. Because there is a difference between right and wrong, objective and subjective truths. While we would prefer ice cream to insulin, not everything can be subjective. Truth is not relative to my whims nor fancies. At some point, there needs to be things of which I can be certain which are true or false, no matter my opinion of them. The existence of truth rather than opinion means finding meaning and purpose to life is possible. We can make sense of our experiences. We can find guidance for our actions and our beliefs. So to say truth is relative, it's very fashionable. It's a very attractive way of viewing the world, but it is untenable. It does not stand to reason. Not everything can bend to our opinions, our preferences. There is a better way. See, believing all truth is relative makes the world all about you. And that is ultimately really very lonely. Because you will avoid every situation or person who does not agree with you or who does not conform to your personal preferences until you're all by yourself. And that is no way to live. So since it is true, stories help us to make sense of human existence, it is also true we process stories better together, especially God's story and our own story. We process them. We make sense of them better together. Sharing stories is a fundamental human activity serving various purposes, from entertainment to education, from cultural preservation to fostering empathy. One compelling illustration of the power of story sharing is the use of personal narratives and support groups, such as Alcoholics Anonymous. In these settings, individuals share their personal stories of struggle and recovery, and this storytelling acts as a source of inspiration and support for others who are facing similar challenges. It helps members feel less alone, understand others have faced and overcome similar obstacles, and it helps members to learn strategies for dealing with their own issues. Moreover, sharing stories in such contexts can foster a strong sense of community and belonging which is crucial for emotional support and can significantly aid in the recovery process. It is a vivid example of how storytelling can be an instrumental part 
of in the recovering process. It is a vivid example of how it can help us to grow and to heal together. Now, local churches are really not dissimilar to support groups based on the 12-step framework, a framework which was actually first designed by Bill Wilson and Dr. Bob Smith, the founders of Alcoholics Anonymous, in 1938. Both Wilson and Smith were themselves Christians. They were inspired and informed by their faith to develop this framework because they discovered sharing each other's stories of struggle with alcoholism was pivotal in their recovery. Because they are similar to support groups, local churches are not clubs where everyone has it all together. We are sinners, saved by grace, who build each other up to maturity. And in that, sometimes we succeed in life. But mostly, we learn together by processing together God's story and our own stories learning how to make sense of them, that we might find meaning and purpose, that we might make sense of our experiences, that we might together find guidance for our actions and our beliefs. In our reading for the first epistle to the Corinthians, we find an excellent example of this processing. See, in that scripture focus, Paul the Apostle reminded the friends of Jesus at Corinth of what they believed to be true that knowledge puffs up, but love, being affection and goodwill and benevolence toward each other, well, that love builds up. Remembering this truth together helped them to apply it to the question of whether to eat food sacrificed to idols or not. Now, the issue of whether the friends of Jesus are permitted to eat food sacrificed to pagan idols, it has a lot of nuance to it, and no hard or fast rules. So essentially, in this passage, Paul was writing again, as he had in a previous passage, to judge for yourselves. If anyone wants to argue about this, we have no other custom, nor do the churches of God. Friends of Jesus are free to have their own opinion and preference on this issue. However, there's always a however, isn't there? There is an objective truth that overrides the subjective truth of our preference or opinion on this issue as it does on most issues be careful of what you think uh, be careful that this right of yours in no way becomes a stumbling block to the weak say what did paul actually write that we should let other people's opinions guide our own behavior well yes he did he wrote it because if our behavior is a stumbling block to a brother and sister in faith and causes them to sin, then we should not do it. The apostle encouraged, nay, he instructed the community of the friends of Jesus at Corinth to forego purchasing and eating meat sacrificed to pagan idols if there are those among their community of faith whose conscience would be hurt by this choice. Set aside your preference for someone else's well-being. While this instruction was not written to us, it was certainly written for us. It comes up in our day when we eat halal meat. Contemporary friends of Jesus are to consider seriously how our behavior affects others in our community, whether our freedoms cause the less mature to stumble or even bring the commands of God into disrepute. 
this is a value that we would put someone else's well-being before our own that is quite contrary to the spirit of this world. And so we will need to work out together how to apply this timeless wisdom and to discern together what behaviors to refrain from in these uncertain times. And that is the purpose of our connect groups, to reflect together on the timeless wisdom revealed in the Bible and to discern together how and when to apply these timeless truths. This is how we build each other up to maturity. And sometimes we succeed, but mostly we learn. We will only commit to this practice of learning together if we too agree with the crowds at Capernaum who were astonished at Jesus' teaching because he was teaching them as one who had authority. So what do you think? What does your conscience tell you? Does God exist? Well, it is written in the letter to the Hebrews, now without faith it is impossible to please God since the one who draws near to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So if you accept the objective truth of God's existence, then you must believe the objective truth Jesus is who he said he is and that what is written about him is true. Let me remind you of C.S. Lewis's faith, of which he wrote, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. What do the friends of Jesus know to be objectively true? We know that God is faithful. We know that Jesus saves. We know the Holy Spirit empowers, and we know the church will endure. These are objective truths upon which we can build our lives. And by these and other truths revealed in the Bible, we see and understand everything else. So to be a friend of Jesus is to conform your life to Jesus' teaching because we believe God's commands are true. It is to view and judge all of your life and all of the human condition and all of the systems of this world against the objective truth of the testimony of the Bible, especially as it reveals God's commands. So commit to walking in them to the best of your ability and in the power and leading of the Holy Spirit. For those commands that you do not understand or for those teachings you struggle to obey, there is a community of brothers and sisters by faith who are willing to connect with you and to mature with you. Sometimes we will succeed in this, but mostly we will learn when we admit to each other our shortcomings and our failures, and we allow the Holy Spirit to show us together and to equip us in a better way of being human. So let us now together commit to placing our faith in Jesus, to living a Christian lifestyle, and to building each other up to maturity because we actually believe God's commands are true. Let us pray this in song. This next song is a, 
a song of worship, but it's also an opportunity to reflect on your own faith, what you believe to be objectively true. And if you will respond to God's moving in your life and his truth, then this becomes your prayer. So stand with us and let us sing together. Lord, Jesus, I surrender all to Him my So 